We're now in the 10th week of a sermon series uh, titled Just Before the Cross. And in the series, we are walking through all that Jesus taught his disciples just before he was arrested and crucified to death. Beginning with John chapter 13 and all the way till John chapter 17, just before his arrest, Jesus taught his disciples a lot of extremely important things. These were kind of his last teachings before he departed from them. And uh, this set of teachings is often referred to as the farewell discourse of Jesus. And that's what we are walking through in this sermon series. As part of the series, if you remember, we just spent three weeks on John chapter 15. And today we are moving into the second half of John chapter 16. Uh, we've already covered the first part of John chapter 16 earlier when we looked at all that Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit in his farewell discourse. So today we're going to be looking at John chapter 16, verses 16 to 22. I'm going to read that out for us and it'll come up for us on screen as well. A little while and you will see me no longer, Jesus said. And again, in a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me, because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me again, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour, her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, Jesus is talking specifically of the time of sorrow that his disciples would endure between his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus talked quite a bit about his coming crucifixion to his disciples. But if you go back and read all of these accounts of the Gospels, it's, it would be pretty obvious to you that his disciples just didn't get it. They just couldn't grasp that this Jesus, who they believed to be the Son of God, the Messiah and the Savior of the world, was going to die on the cross. And so till the resurrection of Christ, they were in a state of deep sorrow. Jesus knew this. 
And so knowing that they would be crushed by sorrow, he tells his disciples in verse 20 in the passage we are looking at, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You will be sorrowful, Jesus said, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This movement into the sorrow of Jesus' death on the cross before the movement up into the joy of his resurrection is what we're going to call the J-curve in the sermon. It'll come up for us on screen. This term, the J-curve, was first coined by a gifted Christian author named Paul Miller. He wrote a book titled, J-curve, Dying and Rising with Jesus in Everyday Life. You can get it on Amazon. I haven't read the book myself, but I've heard Paul Miller teach on, on this theme quite a bit. And I do need to acknowledge that this sermon has been significantly influenced by what Paul Miller has to say on the J-curve. So if the sermon is a blessing to you, you need to thank Paul Miller, and you might want to get hold of his book as well on Amazon. So this J-curve, or movement down into the sorrow of Jesus' death on the cross, before the movement up into the joy of his resurrection, is limited not only to Christ, but in a much smaller way, it also extends to every believer in every single aspect of our lives. In other words, just as Jesus died and rose again from the dead to totally complete our redemption, all of us as believers of Christ must also die and rise again in a thousand small ways all through our lives as we gradually grow in becoming more and more like Jesus. So what Jesus told his disciples in verse 20 is going to be true for all of us. Whether you like it or not, whether you receive it or not, whether you accept it or not, it's going to be true for every one of us. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. We will be sorrowful, but our sorrow will turn into joy. This is the Jacob. We will be sorrowful, but our sorrow will turn into joy. That said, I'm going to draw three things for us from this passage. First, how we misunderstand sorrow. Second, faithfully following Jesus along the J-curve. And third, the strength to stay in our sorrow till Christ brings us joy. Three things. How we misunderstand sorrow faithfully following Jesus along the J-curve and the strength to stay in our sorrow till Christ brings us joy. Let's look at the first thing, how we misunderstand sorrow. You know, I think all of us, we misunderstand our lives as disciples of Christ in three ways. First, we do not appreciate how much joy we already have in Christ. 
we keep forgetting that we don't find joy on and the joy we find we keep forgetting is not dependent on circumstances our joy comes from Christ we have this incredible gift of bringing the joy of Christ into the circumstances around us so the first mistake we all make is that we experience too little of the joy of Christ that we already have in our lives the second mistake we make as disciples of Christ is that we fear sorrow too much all of us are more afraid of things like sorrow and disappointment and failure and stress than we need to be just as we under um estimate the reality of joy in our lives we also underestimate the role of sorrow in a christian's life and i'm referring to godly sorrow not worldly sorrow there is a distinction and the bible makes a very clear distinction between the two in 2 corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 for example the apostle paul says godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly sorrow produces death and this kind of godly sorrow has a very important role to play in the lives of every disciple of Christ that's the second mistake we make we underestimate the importance of sorrow godly sorrow in a christian's life the third mistake we make is that in seeing joy and sorrow as mutually exclusive opposites we wrongly believe that if we are joyful we can't experience sorrow or if we have sorrow in our lives we cannot be joyful we see joy and sorrow as two distinct and disconnected things but in this passage jesus is calling us to see joy and sorrow not as disconnected things he is inviting us to see joy and sorrow as a continuum you will be sorrowful jesus said but your sorrow will turn into joy that is the jacob in our lives the life of every disciple of christ will and must follow this pattern of jesus going into his death before rising up in his resurrection the jacob is the constant an unchanging map of every christian's life every faithful follower of jesus will walk through the j curve in a thousand different ways every christian will face sorrow but that sorrow will turn into joy and this has big implications for our lives first we really need to reorient our expectation of how life will unfold deep down all of us have an assumption we just so naive in believing that life will flow like this 
all the way up. This is how we expect. This is how subconsciously, deep down, we really believe that our life is going to be only like this, all the way up. But this is not biblical at all. Biblically, this is not how the life of a believer is going to play out. We should assume and expect a series of Jacob's sorrows and disappointments and the death of ourself and our flesh through these sorrows and disappointments. And then the joy of Christ bursting forth as we experience the power of his resurrection. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, he says that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by means, any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul is saying, I long to follow my Savior Jesus along the Jacob. This is normal life for every believer. Normal life, every believer, all through our lives. And so when we face sorrow or disappointment in our lives, we need not be discouraged. We need not feel bitter. We need not feel angry with God. We need not see, experience our faith being diluted. When we experience sorrow in our lives, we only need to locate ourselves. We only need to situate ourselves correctly on the Jacob. We only need to locate, situate ourselves correctly on the Jacob, remembering the words of Jesus that our sorrow will turn into joy. In every sorrow, we must remember that we are merely caught up in re-enacting the most magnificent story ever told, the gospel. When we walk along with Christ our Savior through the Jacob, we're not just believing in Jesus, but we are also becoming like Jesus. And so we, we misunderstand sorrow in our lives because we do not recognize the Jacob. If we truly recognize the Jacob, joy and sorrow, we will no longer be afraid of sorrow. You know, the culture around us, it has so uh, convinced us that we shouldn't express, ex experience sorrow in our lives. If you're a parent, you don't want your child to experience any sorrow ever. Isn't that true? Culture has convinced us that we cannot experience sorrow at all. This is a lie. This lie sets itself up against the gospel. The way of Jesus is not without sorrow. The way of Jesus is not joy without sorrow. The way of Jesus is joy despite sorrow. 
The way of Jesus is joy through sorrow. You will be sorrowful, Jesus said, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And so this modern obsession with creating a sorrow-free life, with creating a problem-free life, is such a burden on us. It crushes us. Because we are living in this wrong expectation that there is no room for sorrow in a believer's life, we are just unable to cope with the harsh realities of a broken world. Nothing, nothing stuns our spiritual growth more than the assumption and expectation that there should be no sorrow in our lives. And that brings us to the second thing I would like to look at today. Faithfully following Jesus along the Jacob. Faithfully following Christ our Savior on the path that he walked. The Jacob plays out in many different ways in each of our lives. I don't think there's any aspect of life where the Jacob does not play out in the life of a disciple of Jesus. But today, I want to zoom in on how the Jacob plays out in one specific aspect of our lives, that of loving one another. If you remember last week's sermon from John chapter 15, that sermon was centered on Jesus' command to all of us to love one another as he loved us. We spent a lot of time last week looking at what loving one another actually looks like in gospel community. And we're going to continue with that theme today as well. As we do that, I want to first look at how the Jacob played out in the life of Christ himself as he loved us. And then I'm going to help us see how the Jacob must unfold in every one of our lives as we love one another in all of our relationships. Philippians 2, chapter verses 5 to 11, the verse that Stephen read for us during the call to worship, it talks about, it's a great, beautiful, poetical description of the Jacob that Christ went through in order to save us. He was born... In the likeness of men. He gave up heaven. He came merely human. Fully God. Fully human. Not only did he come down to earth. He humbled him. He he emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant. He washed his disciples feet. As we saw at the beginning of the sermon series. He humbled himself to death. Not only did he humble himself to death. He humbled himself to death. To a shameful death on the cross. That's the Jacob going all the way down. And therefore, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. This is the Jacob of Christ himself. Here's my point. In all our relationships, marriage, parenting, friends, church, gospel community, in all of our our relationships, When we start obeying Jesus' command of loving one another, we don't expect the Jacob at all. 
We don't believe the Jacob applies to us. It applies to Christ, but when Christ calls us to love one another as he loved us, we don't believe that Jacob has anything to do with us. We expect our love for one another in all relationships, if you can go to the next slide, to look something like this all the way up. In other words, we reject altogether the truth of the Jacob in our relationships. This is a massive mistake. And if we make this mistake, it's going to affect us in two ways. First, if you believe that Jacob subconsciously doesn't apply to your relationship, it's going to make us really, really, really struggle in our relationships. We're going to get bitter in our relationships. We're going to get disappointed in our relationships. We're going to get crushed every time any relationship even begins to go wrong. If we don't expect the Jacob, we are poorly equipped to live in a broken world. The second massive way it affects us is if we reject the Jacob in our relationships, it is going to stunt our growth in Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness is loving others even when they hurt us. And if we don't expect anything to go wrong in our relationships, if we don't expect the downward curve before things go back up, we, we are not going to grow in Christ-likeness. And so the J-curve should reorient our expectations of our relationship with one another. In every single relationship, we should all expect multiple experiences of dying to self and rising to Christ in loving Him and in loving one another. So when friends within the church disappoint us, or when our own parents crush us, or when our children let us down, or when our spouses disappoint us, we can respond in two ways. We can be hurt or angry or depressed and frustrated and helpless in our sorrow, just forgetting the reality of the Jacob, or we can remember the Jacob. We can situate ourselves correctly on the Jacob and faithfully follow our beloved Savior on along the Jacob, loving others as Christ loved us and experiencing Jesus' promise to us that you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. For every disciple of Jesus, the Jacob is a reality in every relationship. In marriage, husbands and wives will often hurt each other and crush one another. I'm, I'm not looking at my wife and I. If we truly love Jesus, and if we have truly internalized the Jacob, we will suffer patiently. Dying to ourselves and loving the other. 
even though our marriage may slip downhill for a short season before it bounces back up in the power of the resurrection of Christ. Listen. In every marriage, at least one of the two partners should be living the Jacob. Because both of us are sinful. Because both husband and wife are sinful, one of them has to be living the Jacob, patiently bearing the sin of the other for the marriage to flourish. It's not the same partner all the time. Both of them have to live the Jacob. We take turns. We live, I as a husband live the Jacob and my wife lives the Jacob. Together we take turns. But sadly, in some marriages, our parents, our partners are constantly blaming one another. Let me tell you something really straight. You're not going to like it, but I, I, I will tell you this. You know, when we counsel couples, uh, we see both partners actually believing they are the better person in the marriage. And so if you feel you are the better person in your marriage, you need to live the Jacob longer. Because you're the better person, you see. That's what you believe about yourself. You, you're the better person. The other person, is, is, is the problem is with him. So you, you're more mature. So you need to live the Jacob more than your partner if you really believe that you are better than your partner. Either admit that you are the worst among the two, own up and let your partner live the J-curve, or if you feel you're really better, step up and start living the J-curve, believing Jesus will turn your sorrow into joy. That's marriage. But singleness is perhaps the hardest J-curve of all. What can I say to comfort and encourage singles who are lonely? I can only point you to the Jacob of Christ himself. He was single and he waited patiently for his bride through his life, death, and resurrection. In fact, Over 2,000 years after his resurrection, he is still patiently waiting for his bride, the glorified church. All I can say, if you're single, is because Christ is still waiting, he can empathize with your waiting. He can empathize more than anyone else. He knows your waiting. Because he himself is even now waiting for his pride, the glorified church. The J-curve is very real real in the gospel community of the church too. Ajay and I, we've we've enjoyed serving this community. We, We find great joy in serving different people in many different ways. We've been serving... Uh, in New City for almost 11 years now, since the time we planted this church. And as we look back, I have to tell you that there are quite a few people who have said and done some extremely hurtful things 
to us. Don't worry, I'm not going to get into any specific details. Every, everyone is safe today. So often we would, would love and serve and invest in someone for months. But when the time comes and we feel led by God, when we lean in and speak the truth to them in love, they would retaliate and, and say really harsh things, really mean things to us. After serving uh, so much for so many years, this is our Jacob that we need to follow Jesus faithfully on. We have learned and we are still learning to suffer patiently as Christ suffered for us, knowing that one day he will turn our sorrow into joy. Not just us. I'm sure a few of you at least feel that we have hurt you too. And I'm sure at least some of what you feel that we have hurt you is true too. And so like us, you too are called to suffer patiently like Christ did, believing that Christ will one day turn your sorrow to into joy. We all have to follow Jesus along faithfully on our Jacobs. You have your Jacob to follow Jesus faithfully on, and we have our Jacob to follow. I have my Jacob to follow Jesus faithfully on. This is the only way that brothers and sisters in Christ in a gospel community can love each other. And that brings us to the third and the last thing I wanted to draw out for us. The strength to stay in our sorrow till Christ brings us joy. Look at verse 22, the passage that we're looking at this morning. Jesus said, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you and your hearts will rejoice and no one, No one will take your joy from you. Jesus assures us of great and unshakable joy if we follow him faithfully along the Jacob. But you know what our problem is? We all want to run away from the Jacob. At the first hint of something like this, Jacob, beginning to form in our lives, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships. At the first hint of a Jacob, we try to avoid it like the plague. When we believed in Christ, we all signed up for eternal life. None of us signed up to suffer patiently as we love one another well. None of us. Nobody told you this when they shared the gospel with you. When you share the gospel with others, don't tell them this just yet. As we pray on it for, as we pray to grow in personal evangelism. None of us signed up to walk with Jesus along the Jacob. None of us signed up to carry our cross. We read that verse much later after coming uh, to faith. So how do we find the strength now to carry our cross? How do you find the strength? 
You know, both in John 15, if you remember, and even in this passage, John 15, where Jesus talks about him being the true wine, and here in this chapter, in John chapter 16, Jesus is placing a lot of emphasis on joy. I hope that's not lost on you. Jesus has been talking a lot about joy. Joy is the defining, is one of the defining attributes of a disciple of Christ. All of us want to be joyful too. I don't think there's anyone who says, I don't want to be joyful. We all deeply desire to be joyful. But because of our sinfulness, we all have a limited capacity for joy. I say we have limited capacity for joy because of our sinfulness, because our sins, like our worry, our anxiety, our own greed, our selfishness, you're not going to acknowledge it, but our jealousy, all of these things rob us of the joy that Christ has already given us. So we have a very, because of our sins, we have a very limited capacity for the joy of Christ. So the key to growing in joy, the key to joy is Christ-likeness. Without a Christ-like character, we will have a very low capacity to experience joy. But, As we slowly grow in our Christ-like character, we also grow in our capacity for joy. So in order to experience joy, which we all want, we have to grow in Christ-like character. Otherwise, there can be no joy in our lives. And the only way to grow in Christ-like character is by walking through the J-curve. The only way to grow in Christ-like character is by faithfully following Jesus on his J-curve a thousand times in a thousand different ways in our lives. It is only by walking through the J-curve again and again and again in every relationship and in many relationships and in every circumstances and, and many circumstances. It is only by walking faithfully with Jesus along his J-curve that we grow in Christ-like character. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And for us, there is great joy at the end of the J-curve. And so, as Christ promised us in this passage, that this joy, no one can ever take away. And like Christ, may we too endure our cross, scorning its shame for the glorious and the inexpressible joy that Christ has set before us.